the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to the Business Hour. Today the business at hand is a very timeless business that has taken root in the Willamette Valley and in Oregon. And for years, the Willamette Valley, even while producing quality grapes and and wine, it was overshadowed by Napa and Sonoma, uh, the regions of Northern California that are uh, very productive, very recognized for quality wines. But over the last couple of decades or two, uh, the Willamette Valley has been in the spotlight with wineries such as the Stoller Family Estate, which has helped to lead the way. And so I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Melissa Burr, the head winemaker who's at the helm of the Stoller Family Estate winemaking operation. Welcome to the Business Hour, Melissa. Thank you, Ron. Glad to be here. Well, as I mentioned uh, in that introduction, uh You've become recognized, Stoller's become recognized as one of the leading winemakers in a region that has been recognized as a leader in the production uh, of a variety of wines. I think initially it was Pinot Noir, um, but uh, that doesn't just happen uh, without um, major, major uh, effort from growers uh, of grapes and of winemaking operations. And so, sure, can you share a little bit about how you think over the last couple of decades um, Willamette Valley being put on the winemaking map worldwide, not just in North America, but worldwide? Tell us a little bit about how you think that that came about, Melissa. Yeah, absolutely. So, the, you know, the story with Oregon and with the United States in general is a relatively new story for, for grape growing compared to other parts of the world, like Europe and um, worldwide, really, but especially in, in Europe with you know, hundreds of years of grape growing and winemaking, whereas the United States, relatively young, there's you know, wine grapes planted in the 1900s and we had prohibition and that halted everything and then people picked that back up across the United States, California in particular, and planted grapes in the in the uh, 40s and in the 50s. And Oregon story falls into that um, time frame later. So the, the first wine grapes in the Willamette Valley in Oregon in particular were planted just 50 years ago. So that really is just not even a, a lifetime ago for somebody. And so over the last 50 years, it started off <clears throat> with Pinot Noir and other varieties being planted. And in the Willamette Valley, kind of the heart of the Willamette Valley and the Dundee Hills was some of the first Pinot Noir vines planted by the pioneering families that did that, like the Letts and, um, and then the Ponzi's and the next you know, waves of, of pioneers. But point being, you know, 50 years ago, that was the start of, of Oregon Pinot, and there was not much of it. So over the last you know, 50 years, the plantings increased, and things changed, and uh, then I would say the kind of the next big movement was the, the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when kind of the next wave of, of wine producers started to come into Oregon, in particular, you know, Domaine Druin and and we had, you know, the, the Ponzi's were really getting established and growing, and 
a whole other wave of like, Archery Summit and, and these wineries that were starting to come in and, and Bill Stoller right there too as a leader of that early kind of second wave of, of wine um, production and in particular grape growing. So that happened. And so I'd say, you know, going to Stoller's history, Bill Stoller, he is a, a third generation Oregonian. He comes from a farming family in Oregon. They um, have all sorts of different agricultural focuses, and he grew up on the property that is now his um, his vineyard and, and winery, uh, helping his uncle farm. And then in the um, early 90s, he decided that he was going to purchase the property and and turn it into a vineyard, a world-class vineyard. That was his vision. And again, that was still a very relatively young time in Oregon's wine-growing history, but he had that vision of, wow, this is a premier place for for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So he planted the first 20 acres in 1995 of of Oregon wine grapes. And then if you kind of quickly kind of move towards where we are today, that, you know, that pioneering spirit that that both those first and kind of second waves of, of people had to come in and really kind of put the place on the map really also led to a lot of collaboration and discovery. And so people you begin to kind of recognize slowly that this is a great place for, for wine grapes, a challenging place, kind of something that was was new and pioneering, like I'm saying. And then just through the spirit of collaboration and hard work and a lot of passion and a lot of focus of um, kind of a legacy-type focus, a lot of Oregon wine um, companies, vineyards, wine growers, wine owners have for the land and the place have, I think, built us today to be such a special um focused place to, to grow wine grapes. So, and, um, yeah. No, go right yeah. ahead. Finish that. Yeah, so I think just looking at Oregon's history, again, I think the biggest take-home is this is a, a relatively young industry that's been working passionately and, and intensely and through discovery and collaboration and a lot of hard work, <clears throat> blood, sweat, and tears, has built up to today, you know, having a, a collective mass of serious, you know, high-quality vineyards and wineries producing these world-class wines. I definitely um, have a sense that there were uh, lots of blood, sweat, and tears uh, uh, shed uh, simply because um, the growth and being recognized as a quality wine production region, it, it just doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't typically happen in just two or three decades or even, you know, uh, five decades, you know, uh, 50 years. It, 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 in the case of some European uh, regions, it, it may have taken centuries uh, for a combination of quality uh, wine producers. I, I'm wondering, Melissa, if early on, was it Pinot Noir that was, was pretty much the focus and and – and do you think it might have been European families, or could it even have been some California um, wine families that uh, saw that the the climate, you know, the viticulture and the soil and the geography of the Willamette Valley was was suitable for for Pinot, or or were there other wines that started early on too? It, it was Pinot Noir that I think was the driver, and that's I think a lot of the people that were the pioneers like the you know the Lett family and, and the Ponzi's and and others um, had come from California and had gone through UC Davis, many people have, and you have recognized studying Pinot Noir and looking at the growing regions that it flourishes in, these cooler climate growing regions. 
we're looking around the United States at where this could be done outside of California and looked to Oregon and saw, you know, this our Willamette Valley in particular is a classified as a cool climate growing region and that's measured by the amount of heat units you have during the growing season and it's quantified by, you know, what the the level is there to determine what type of a region you are. But they, you know, recognized Oregon and kind of put a dart on the map and came up for Pinot Noir, but also with other varieties to try. So while the first vines were being planted 50 years ago, there was also Chardonnay being planted, and I know there's other varietals going in as well, uh, maybe not as in mass as Pinot Noir, but alongside with Pinot Noir. And then the Pinot Noir was successful right off the bat. The clonal material that was selected, primarily this clone of Pinot called Pomard, and also some Badensville, and then suitcase clones because people travel around and go to Europe and have gotten... There's all sorts of stories of cuttings coming from here or there and getting suitcase smuggled in. So some of that early material is yet to be 100% identified. But, um, yeah, Pinot Noir was an instant success in essence for the plant material itself. There was a lot of viticulture work that needed to be done in discovery and learning about how to farm it Pinot Noir <clears throat> successfully for our, our climate, but it did well, whereas the Chardonnay that was planted and some of the other varieties that might have not been a as popular or as appropriate for the growing conditions like maybe some bigger reds or some whites that didn't really catch on as much um, for sales and for consumption at that time kind of didn't do as well and the chardonnay um, in particular wasn't as successful because the clonal material that was initially planted was coming from warmer growing regions, in particular from California, and, you know, warmer regions as such that do require more heat to consistently ripen. And so after, you know, several several years, if not a you know, dozen years, it was um, not, it, it just wasn't prevalent, and it wasn't something that people were repeat planting, and they were changing their plantings, and then increasing the Pinot Noir plantings, and then the next kind of white grape that came on that was a success was Pinot Gris. And that was, you know, mid-80s to early 90s when the Pinot Gris started to get planted. And it, it flourishes in our climate. You can successfully um, ripen and grow quite a lot of um, Pinot Gris and can have a, a healthier, heavier crop load for it. It does well in this environment. So Pinot Gris started to go in and then you know, just quickly grew in acreage alongside with Pinot Noir. And well as the Chardonnay just kind of stalled out, and that continued on. And so when, when going to Stoller's timeline, when Bill Stoller, like I had mentioned, planted his first 20 acres in 1995, at that time in the 95, in the early 90s, there was material being released um, from the University um, of Davis that with different clones of both Pinot Noir and of Chardonnay that had come from regions that were more appropriate for ours. In particular, we call them Dijon clones of both Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were available. And they, um, in, with the Chardonnay, they are smaller clusters. They tend to be able to ripen a couple weeks earlier than our initial you know, clones of Chardonnay that we had available. And so with that new material, people started to pick up the Chardonnay again, and Bill Stoller decided that he was going to go ahead and plant half of his first 20 acres to Chardonnay. So he did 10 of Pinot Noir and 10 of Chardonnay in 95, 
and then went from there. And so with that more successful clone for Oregon, that helped kind of develop the Chardonnay. And um, then it took another decade and a half, I think, for Chardonnay to kind of come back around in essence, because I feel like a lot of times people were inundated with Chardonnay and still are. There's, I mean, it's the number one wine grape in the world, I think, and consumed all over the place. And there was an understanding kind of stylistically that Chardonnay could be buttery and heavy, and that kind of stereotype was going on all the way, and still is to, to some extent. But like, the long-winded point here is currently, for Oregon, Pinot Noir is our number one variety planted. Still, Pinot Gris is the number one white wine variety, but Chardonnay, although a very small amount of what we're growing is being grown and made very successfully, and it's rapidly increasing in production, in acreage and vineyards. And winemakers here in Oregon are just celebrating this varietal because, again, we have the right clonal material. We've got this climate that grows cool climate grapes. Chardonnay's there, and you're able to make this really interesting, beautiful you know, Chardonnay from the area. And I think it's it's going to be, become more and more prevalent as the years go on. You mentioned, um, you know, Bill Stoller uh, making some decisions to uh, move in the direction of, of new plantings, and and I want to get back to uh, Bill Stoller in a bit, but, you know, we want to give him a lot of credit for um, looking to the future and for being somewhat experimental, but in a very smart way. And I want to talk a little bit about your role in helping them uh, be uh, experimental over the last couple of years, because to a very large extent, r- really good winemakers are are really good, smart alchemists, and I think that uh, includes you, Melissa. But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what kinds of uh, experimentation or what kind of role you might have played over the last few years. And um, we'll learn more about uh, how uh, the Stoller family estate uh, produces great wines right after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, 
and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're talking with Melissa Burr, the head winemaker at the Stoller Family Estate Winery, and we've been talking about the history of the Willamette Valley and how it evolved to a point where it is now recognized as one of the quality wine production regions of the world, not just of North America, not just of the U.S., but Melissa was telling us uh, a little bit about why the region uh, was suitable for Pinot Noir, the first of the premier wines uh, from the Willamette Valley, but also how, with a little bit of experimentation, uh, uh, trying different clones of the Chardonnay grape, um, Chardonnay was was able to uh, be recognized, actually, uh, as one of the, the, the fine wines, along with the number one white wine, the Pinot Gris. And, and Melissa, for listeners out there uh, who aren't uh, totally familiar with, with the term viticulture, and, and by the way, you had mentioned uh, uh, the Ponzi family and folks who um, had a background from the uh, University of California at Davis winemaking program. Uh, you also have a pedigree uh, in winemaking. You have a winemaking and fermentation science degree from Oregon State University, which um, I, I might uh, say is one of the other recognized winemaking programs in, in the U.S. Would, would you agree with that? I, I think it, it is, is recognized. They have a really strong food science department at Oregon State University. And when I was there, I was taking some of their fermentation science classes. So, yes, they're definitely recognized, as, along with um, Chemeketa, this community college in Salem. They have a, uh, a very strong both viticulture and enology program, where both of which you could attain a two-year degree. And that has become um, a, a great resource for, for, the, for Oregon in particular. So yes, both of those um, place, both those colleges are are um, wonderful for, for for that, and I especially think that with Chemeketa, with their vision and focus on both um, grape growing and winemaking, that it's leading Oregon um, to success with people. Well, this is uh, the point at which I sound a little like um, a Oregon State um, Chamber of Commerce member, which I'm not, <laughs> but um, the. State of Oregon is a uh, a state that has become highly agriculturally productive overall. Um, wines might be leading the way as far as um, the particular uh, area that's most recognized these days. But really, uh, much like Northern California or Central California, uh, the state of Oregon, uh, and uh, not unlike the state of Washington, you you have a uh, a, a set of uh, climate conditions and geology and geography that in some sense might be a cross between those two states. Um, but uh, it also 
because of the programs like uh, the uh, OSU, the Oregon State University uh, program that you went through, you know, has fostered legions of folks. And although in some regions around the world you you, you have families where the lessons were learned uh, on the job, uh, it doesn't hurt to have a, a, a science background. And before we took that break, I made this reference to you as as being a, a, a modern-day uh, alchemist. You know, uh, would you uh, agree, Melissa, that, that winemaking is one of those fields that is distinctly a cross between um, an art and a science these days, that, you know, that we're relying very much on your palate and your intuition about what could work at, at you know at times uh, as you're engaged in the winemaking process. Yeah, absolutely is. It is just that. I mean, it's a mix of um, of of have, having to have a strong science background for many reasons, but with in particular with the wine making side of it, with you know, the chemistry and just understanding how fermentation works and understanding the metabolism of yeast and and how you know the understanding pH and acidity and all those things and how they interplay and stability in wines and there's a lot to it that is very scientific and has to be to be you know, quality stable wines and there's a lot you can just dive into and you could spend a lifetime researching different facets of you know, scientifically of dynamics of both grape growing and wine making uh, to your, you know, to no avail, and so there's, you know, there's that, you know, tannins and how they interact and how oxidation, just on and on with wine. So there's a very strong science piece, and on the other hand, it's equally as important the artistic side, with you know decisions that you make, every decision you make, just based off of a vision of what type of style of wine you're wanting to make, and how you go about that. So you know, it goes all the way from when you decide to pick the grapes and how do you how do you ferment them how much do you mix them up or you don't or how much you know what kind of yeast do you use and so many little choices that you make based off of some science and particular personal preference and palate that lead to the the story in your in your glass at the end of the the whole process and, and w- would you say that even though i just characterized uh, uh you know quality winemaking is a cross between uh, art and science and, and, and an alchemy of sorts that it's it, you do rely very much on your science to help you be more exacting and that a, a, another winemaker who might be an equally quality winemaker would be relying much more on intuition and maybe have to go through more trial and error whereas when you're manipulating, you know, the processes of fermentation and you're looking at oxi- oxidation and you're looking at sugar levels and uh, you're looking at yeast uh, levels, that you can be scientific, that you can, you know, that you can take the metrics of science related to those ingredients and, and, and be just that, a little more exacting? I think, um, if, you, I mean, if you're asking about my personal style, I think it's definitely both like scientific and a lot of intuition because um, it, it, everybody's different about that like you're kind of getting to like some people just go all off one or more off one or another but I guess the point being they're equally important really just having the tools to be able to 
really have an understanding of what's happening on a kind of a processing level, whether it's, again, the like yeast metabolism or, um, I mean, fermentation dynamics and, and things like that, yes, that's very important and have a confidence with that. But I would say more and more personally, as long as I'm comfortable with that baseline understanding, I really lean now towards uh, the kind of the expression of, of the wines and the day-to-day and more of the intuition part because that's, I think it's, it's really inspiring, it's interesting, it's artistic, and that's kind of where my passion lies with winemaking. I mean, I definitely have to have the science background and understanding, but I mean, I guess if I'm answering the question of what I lean more towards, I use them both, but I probably lean more towards the intuition, more like cooking, kind of like the flavors and the creativity and like a chef, you need to know temperatures and how the, everything works and how you're, what kind of pans you use and just all that kind of, you know, timing of everything. It's critical and interaction and science of your ingredients, but really a lot of the art in that is just your vision and, and the flavors and combining things that are really exciting and uh, interesting. Well, you know, what I was actually uh, trying to say was I thought that maybe because you had the science background, uh, having that as a foundation is, is part of what allows you to combine it with your, your intuition. And, and, you know, I've always regarded intuition as, uh, taking information that's, that's there that you can't always put your finger on, but you sense that if you do something, uh, in your case with one of the ingredients, that it could lead you in a direction, uh, that you don't know because that's not the exacting science part of it, but that you think might yield a certain flavor. Uh, you know, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. And I think a lot of that comes with also being adaptable with your mindset, and that can be a struggle when you have the two almost opposing things happening. You're very scientific, and that can be data-oriented and detail-oriented and have kind of some parameters that can be be there and almost stringent and on the other hand you know using kind of more experimental intuition like you were saying you think this is going to be good or maybe three years in a row it went this way but now we're not going to do that because it's different and just being able to be adaptable that's that's kind of the mix and I think again that can be a struggle and people can lean either way I mean some winemakers are very much scientific and really make wine by numbers but I would say it's fair to say that that's really not what Oregon is about in as a whole. I mean, it's definitely a base of extremely intelligent scientific people that are always pushing the envelope and, and researching, and, and that's wonderful, like you were saying, with education and, and all that. That's led to the success of the industry for certain, but also I think there's a lot of art in making wine in the Willamette Valley uh, because of what we have here. We have you know a cool climate, and that what that means is that we have um, we have we're kind of always riding this edge of success, uh, meaning that sometimes you know we're, we're we're always working with nature. But like for instance, right now it's it's April and it's been raining for five and a half, almost six months straight. We've really had only like three or four days of sun, and what that translates into, besides people going a little stir crazy or a lot stir crazy in the vineyard, is that. The vines, there's no bud break really happening. It's just maybe happening now in the vineyards on average in the Willamette Valley. And bud break is when 
the vines kind of wake up from dormancy and start their growth cycle, and the little shoots, the buds, they call them, it will push on these canes and vines of the, of the grapes and then turn into the new shoots for the growing season, where last year and the year prior, there were already tractors going in the vineyards on average in the Willamette Valley, and we had had bud break at Stoller Family Estate. We had had bud break by a, about a month ago already, and so... The point is, you know, you're always working with nature, but in a cooler climate, you can kind of ride up to the edge of what if we have a very cool spring and the summer's not as, as warm and then we have a rainy fall, you're kind of always struggling. So I think, I guess the point is, like, you, you have that challenge and then you have a wine grape like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and a lot of the wine grapes we grow, but in, in particular Pinot Noir that's very reflective of this situation. It doesn't taste the same every year no matter how much you would want it to so you have to be adaptable and you have to i think be intuitive and and uh, and work with this reflective kind of challenging growing conditions right of grape and all that right and in fact uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that you know because this intuitive process is going to come up uh, in the second half of the program, we're going to take a break right now, but we're with Melissa Burr, the head winemaker of Stoller Family Estate. We'll be back to talk with Melissa more right after this break. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And we're here with Melissa Burr, the head winemaker at the Stoller Family Estate Winery in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And we've been talking a lot about uh, the Willamette Valley itself and about the evolution of winemaking and before the break, we were talking with Melissa uh, about the the art and science of winemaking. Melissa has a, uh, a pedigree, so to speak, in in winemaking, having gone through the program at Oregon State University and, and studying fermentation and and winemaking there. Um, but we were talking about how you know, and and I was uh, in the one to imply that when you have the science background, it allows you to be more of an alchemist, more creative, more intuitive. Uh, and then Melissa was talking about how you have to factor in things like the weather, which is not controllable. Um, and I'm sure that probably causes you to uh, have to 
uh, almost be creative with whatever the the grape yield is. Um, so, uh, M- Melissa, we were talking about uh, you were talking about the rain, and I, I guess in some sense that's part of what makes Oregon like a cross between Northern California, which is uh, a little warmer than the state of Washington, but you have the rainfall more like Washington. Uh, is that true? Yeah, it's it's its own. Yeah, it's definitely its own unique area with with the rain and the the temperate growing conditions. So yeah, it is a combination. So in the Willamette Valley in particular, we really have these winters that don't get much below. I'd say 40 on average. Yes, we do have snow. We had a, quite a few snow events this winter where we had you know, several days. We have a lot of days of school being closed, but we're not known for a lot of snow or a lot of low temperatures. We don't have freezes that we have to be concerned about for the most part for vine damage, and that kind of thing, that kind of damage occurs below 7 degrees. So being temperate but cool, you know, our coldest we, we get in the 20s sometimes maybe it dips below for just a little bit and then um in the summers is when we get a lot of all, most of our growing degree days so it's almost like a, a faucet turns off with the rainfall most of our rains we average about 40 inches a year in the willamette valley it's blown the record this year but that rain typically starts anywhere from october to november and then lasts until you know springtime off and on and then in the summertime, like, the faucet turns off, and I'd say we always like to joke right around the 4th of July is when you can almost guarantee that summer is officially here. And then our average temperatures are about 75 degrees, 80. We have warm days and cool nights instead of intensely hot days like some other regions have, and then um, warmer nights or just different combinations of things. So this consistent warm days, cool nights, we have a lot of sunlight because where we are, pretty north, um, we end up having in the middle of summer, I think around July something, or maybe around solstice, we have almost an hour, an hour and a half, I think, more sunlight than Napa does. So the way, you know, that our vines are going here is they're dormant, they come they come to life, and then they have a pretty intense growing season in the summer. And then the, the fall can vary, you know, it could be moderate temperatures in the 60s and 70s it can be rainy it can be patchy rain it can be hot so that's kind of really the super bowl of the growing season is the the last six weeks in oregon so when that occurs you know on a warm year like last year when we had bud break in a month earlier our harvest time was end of august at stoller to early september so that's a whole different kind of climate than Maybe this year we're looking at harvest happening later in September, maybe into October. So that can push more into the cooler, rainy conditions, and that really drives what your vintage is like and what your wine grapes taste like. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's the unique condition. So it is kind of a combination of the two regions, but that's kind of the nutshell of, of how it goes here. Right. And in fact, um, Oregon and the Willamette Valley specifically um, has what's what could be considered a, a, a totally unique climate uh, compared to Washington, California, Argentina, Italy, and France. In, in, in many respects, it m- might have a climate that's more like what you could uh, experience in France, maybe the the, the, the Burgundy, uh, Loire Valley uh, areas, uh, because, you know, you have the, the, the coolness and the moisture coming in off the ocean, but at the same time, you can be warmer 
uh, than parts of uh, Germany, for example, that still produces wines, um, and 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 yet cooler than uh, Italy. Um, so you know, you, you you would it be fair to say that you may have some characteristics that are a lot like parts of France? Absolutely, yeah, we're very similar in the par- the orientation on the parallel to Burgundy. We do have a lot of similarities with the growing conditions. And that's why and there's, there's only really a few places in the world that are like this. I'm sure there'll be more, possibly more to discover, but that is why there's been such a success with Pinot Noir here and with the Chardonnay, along with the soil types that we have in Oregon, which are unique in essence to Burgundy. We don't have limestone here and, and we don't have the chalky kind of soils um, in as a whole as they do there, but we do have our, our two main soils are um, exposed marine sedimentary soils and volcanic soils. And those two soil types are very definitive to kind of a flavor, or they're becoming definitive to a flavor profile in, in the wines, and they're very successful for growing wine grapes. So those two soils, along with our climate, is what really puts Oregon on the map as a place. And I think that's also driven, not driven, but that's that's been recognized as what makes Oregon special, and that's on the map, and people are are looking at Oregon for that unique climate. And uh, for again, for listeners out there that aren't familiar with the, the the term viticulture, and you can correct me or expand on this if you'd like, but. You know, we're talking about a, a region that is not too far from the ocean so that you have those that moist air that comes um, off the coast, and then you, you are an actual valley so that, you know, some of that moisture is retained in the valley. Th- then you talked a little bit about the soil uh, uh, chemistry, which is the geology, and then you have uh, those hills, uh, the Dundee Hills and the surrounding hills that are part of the geography, and all of that added up is is what the viticulture is for that region. Would that be correct? Yeah, that makes up the definitely makes up the kind of the, the the area for the viticulture, the whole of what that is. And viticulture is is grape growing, so that's that's what everything's about. That's what your wine is all about. So, what makes it unique is just that the soil types, the microclimate, the the weather. And then in the vineyard, on to what what grapes you're growing, what clones they are, you know, what rootstock combination, how you farm it, so that that whole picture is viticulture. So now we, you know, let's go to you've got the grapes that are planted, and uh, I, I'm I'm curious, do you work hand in hand with the the horticulturist, and in some sense, you are somewhat of a horticulturist as well uh, when when you uh, work with your uh, your growers. Uh, tell us a little bit about that collaboration. Do you ever make recommendations for what you think could or should be planted? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been with Stoller for almost 14 years, so I was able to collaborate with Bill Stoller and our vineyard manager to determine what our new plantings were going to be and still are going to be and what rootstocks they're going to have. So just having that vision of what what we're growing into, and then yes, it is. It's very important to work closely with with the vineyard and the viticulturist because again, that's everything for for the wine at the end of the at the end of the day, at the end of the year, however you might say. So at at Stoller, we have our own um, vineyard manager, and we work very closely just to determine 
now, like all year long, like what we're aiming for, what wines are we going to be making from what sections, you know, what are the challenges of certain areas, what, we, what do we want to do, you know, all that stuff. How are we going to react to the season? Like, you know, are we, we always change because depending on what's happening, I mean, do you do more leaf pull or less or do we want to do this type of a treatment this year with this cover crop because last year it was like this. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hand-in-hand relationship there. What about grafting? Do you do much grafting? Not a lot. We've done a little bit, changing clonal selection of a, a Pinot Noir and then a little bit for Chardonnay, just that in one particular instance. But we we haven't done a lot of grafting at this point. I mean, again, the vineyard's not that old, so we do have um, we, we have the varieties that we intended to grow, and so we haven't um, needed to do too much grafting. It's a very expensive proposition to graft, and it's kind of risky as well. You can do it, but we haven't done much grafting. Instead, what we'll do um, is, is new plantings, but there is the grafting in essence for everything if you look at the vineyard as a whole because all of our wine grapes are planted on a rootstock, and what that means is that you, you know, you've determined what you want to plant and what clone of, let's say, Pinot Noir, but it's not just planted with, on its own roots. It has to be grafted onto a rootstock that is able to live in the soil and be resistant to, in particular, to a, a pest that causes a virus, and it's called phylloxera. It's this little, um, little bug that lives in the soil, and it attacks the grapevine roots, and that basically opens up the roots to be susceptible for disease to come in. And we've discovered that there's these varieties of grapes. They're not vinifera grapes, not wine grapes you'd want for making your finished wine, but the, those grapes have rootstocks um, that are resistant to this phylloxera. So what Oregon, what we've done is gone forward and grafted you know, the grapevine to that rootstock to make sure that these vineyards can last for a long time because, unfortunately, the initial plantings at older vineyards here in Oregon and across um, many parts of the United States are dying due to this this problem of phylloxera if they were planted without rootstock. So, Melissa, expanding on our uh, sort of uh, subtext here about uh, the alchemy of winemaking where uh, a uh, consumer, uh, not unlike myself, uh, has put his uh, 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 faith and my own taste buds in the hands of your taste buds, you know, your expertise, but also your taste buds. Tell us a little bit about the stages where you actually are relying on your own taste buds. You, are you tasting grapes out in the vineyard? And and where are the other stages where you're actually doing tasting? Well, that's that's a good question. It's along the whole way, really. So it's kind of starts from historical knowledge of uh, the vineyard and kind of knowing the different sections based off of um, their track record, but then yeah, tasting wine, tasting grapes in the vineyard, and really kind of assessing what's happening there, and then yeah, all along the way, really to some degree, you're experiencing the the wines or the the grapes that will be your wine. So during fermentation, you're tasting to see you know how it's going, what when you're going to basically press the fermentation when it's done fermenting like are you going to take it off the skins now are you going to leave it for a few more days to get richer um you taste when the wine goes to barrel there's a lot of blending that goes into it so basically you're always kind of checking in and having these 
like knowledge base of what the wines are tasting. Mm. And then it gets very intricate, let's say for Pinot Noir, at the end of the aging. So after harvest, after the grapes are fermented, the wine goes to barrels, and it stays in barrels for about 11 months. And then after that amount of time, let's say for our biggest cuvee of Pinot Noir, we'll start blending, and you're taking these different barrel groups which represent parts of the vineyard and fermentation tanks. There's a whole gamut of flavors you have to work with, and you're building your blend. And so that's a really interesting time because even a little bit of one section changes the flavor of the other of the, the overall cuvee. So, yeah, it's it's you're always checking in, and it's not as daunting as it seems. It's it's more kind of natural because that's what you're doing all the time. And you, I think, the biggest thing with with wine with the wine that we make at Stoller is having a focus of what style we want to make and our style really is one that is reflective of the vineyard it kind of sounds like a little cliche but that we you know we have one vineyard it's all estate fruit it's almost entirely volcanic soil just right on the same hillside there so it's a very expressive piece of our area and very specific our own microclimate in essence and everything so our job is to take that vintage of wine whether it's a rich, fruit-forward wine because it's a warmer growing season or more of a spicy, moderate alcohol, bright acidity type of a wine, um, is to express it the best we can. So we have that, and we just we work really collaboratively in the winery, too, as a group of us, and we taste and do our blends and, oh. and yeah, go about it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melissa, we're going to be taking a break here. We're talking with Melissa Burr, the head winemaker at Stoller Family Estate Winemakers, and... She's been offering a lot of insight, so stay with us. We'll be back with Melissa right after this break. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Melissa Burr, the head winemaker at the Stoller Family Estate Winemaking Group. And uh, I I might add, for listeners out there, if you hadn't already gone to www.stollerfamilyestate.com, you can can follow 
along or at least learn a little bit about the range of wines and uh, I I, again, I might sound a little bit like a uh, infomercial or a commercial at this point, but I think listeners out there might be interested to know that along with the uh, the Pinot Noir, the Pinot, Pinot Gris, the Chardonnay, the Pinot uh, Pinot Noir Rosé, uh, you have a single acre Syrah, uh, a, a Riesling, a Tempranillo, and uh, Tempranillo. Pardon me. Tempranillo, yes, sorry. Tem- Tempranillo, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, uh, you also make a uh, sparkling uh, legacy brut rosé, uh, which I uh, have yet to get my hands on, but I but I think I'm going to. Uh, and um, so that's a lot of different wines. And uh, one of the questions that um, our, our GM here at America's Web Radio, who uh, is a farmer, uh, and uh, he's wondering how you might y- have utilized, even though you mentioned you don't. Uh, utilize grafting to any significant extent, but grafting or any other techniques to ensure consistency. And, and I think a lot of listeners out there wonder, you know, are 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 is there is there any way from year to year to have uh, complete consistency, or are we always relying upon um, the yield uh, of grapes and and of whatever process um, you are overseeing? to try to have some quality control. I mean, what kinds of things do you do to to, to maybe come close to that uh, a wine that resembles a, a, what you think is a really quality wine from a couple of seasons back? Yeah, that's a very good question, and the answer is it's, 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 it's both. So in terms of, you know, or, like I was mentioning earlier, Oregon, we kind of ride the edge of, uh, of success Slash challenge, right? Because it is that the region is challenging. It's it's got a lot of qualities that make these stunning wines, you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and the others that flourish in these cooler climates because they don't get overripe and they develop the spices and the really beautiful acidities and all the things that make them these fabulous wines. But with that, you know, you get like we talked about, you get the challenges of rainfall and what rain brings is humidity and disease pressure and dilution and and all that stuff and um, and yeah, so I guess that's what you know Oregon has in, is known for. But we've inherited that, and that's what everybody works so hard. That's what I was talking about the blood, sweat, and tears part. Like, you know, you're out there and you're learning these lessons. But we we basically do it all year long to to try to guarantee consistency, starting from our pruning and and then you know our vitico- our vineyard management techniques. They're they're very challenging. You know. It, your spray program and the timing of that to make sure you're combating any kind of disease pressure, in particular mildews and um, molds and funguses, and um, getting out there and pulling leaves and, you know, doing a cover crop and making sure you don't have too many tons per acre so you can guarantee those those grapes are going to be very nice and ripe, and that's challenging. It's very expensive. And so at the end of the day, you know, there's so much work put into the vineyards and so much money and stress that it's a very expensive and risky and challenging proposition, but it is, you know, successful because, again, we are in Oregon and we we have these challenges, but we've also gone through them. For example, I've got got several friends that make wine all over, but in California in particular, a few of them, it'll, it'll rain during harvest here sometimes. And I get these texts like, "What are you going to do?" Oh my gosh, it's raining! And it's like that's normal. We know how to deal with with rain. You know, again, we farm all year for that. We have healthy grapes, and they're 
you know, they're balanced and they're protected and there's leaves that are pulled so air can flow and we get out there and yes, it's very challenging, but then you get those grapes into the winery and there's techniques and tools you can use to guide those grapes into the direction to make stunning wines. I mean, rain is, is part of a cool climate. And so the other challenge is heat when it's really warm in the fall and we have east winds that blow. It causes some dehydration and the sugars jump up really quickly in your grapes and that's not necessarily an advantage. You're having to get your grapes harvested very quickly so they don't get too sweet because if they are, then in essence you're going to have a Pinot Noir that's very high alcohol, which is not balanced. That's not the goal. And so our job to ensure consistency is to manage all those factors, use the tools that we have available both in the vineyard and in the winery, and then have that aim for for the style and the goal. So, for instance, in a year that has a little bit of sprinkles and patchwork rain and it's cooler, we have these grapes that come in that are lower sugars, maybe we do more punch downs during fermentation to try to get more flavor out of the skins that are there and there's things you can do to help build that fermentation and there's you know oak barrels that can really accent the wine and, and different yeast and things you can do to show that off in a cool in a hot year where it's you know higher alcohol maybe you, you know pick as early as you can and you do a shorter fermentation and you know you focus on balance and making sure the sugars don't get too high things like that because yes it, it needs to be a consistent product but it also I think the beauty of Oregon wines are um, lies in the artisan factor of the fact that we're not going to make the same Pinot exactly every year. They're going to be very expressive of that of that growing season. And I look at those wines as like a time capsule. That's why I feel like people can get to know Oregon and never stop learning. You know, consumers and and wine people, wine growers and winemakers, everybody, because every year is different. It's almost like having a child every year because they're, you know, they're unique you know, and that's fascinating to me. Right. I mean, you literally have the birth of the of the grapes uh, uh, seasonally. Uh, Melissa, has the Willamette Valley ever experienced uh, drought uh, that required uh, irrigation other than uh, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the supply that might come from the Willamette River uh, uh, and the Cascade and the Columbia River? It, as a whole, as a, like a region, there's been extremely dry summers, and they have been drought, like droughty, like there's, there's fire danger. And then in terms of, of the vineyards, it can be very challenging because, like I mentioned earlier in the program, we, it's almost, you know, we have a lot of rainfall, but then the faucet literally turns off in the summer, and we don't get much all summer long. So if we have a hot summer... Our soils go from a lot of water content to very dry, especially at the surface, and they crack, and, and that can be a struggle for the vines, especially for young vines. So it's kind of one of the, it, it's not kind of, it is, it's up to the individual vineyard and the philosophy of the vineyard whether or not irrigation is put in um, or not, or people will hand water for the first few years, the vines if needed. So the answer is yes, we do have droughts, but we don't have anything in terms of drought, in, like California has gone through, with all over the region, because we do have, like you said, there's water available, and we do have some ground holding capacity here, and we get more moisture, so we don't have quite the same conditions as they do in, in California. Well, Melissa, I, I have to say, uh, based upon my visit to the uh, the winery and 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 the beautiful, beautiful setting for. Uh, 
Stoller Family Wines. Bill Stoller deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the uh, the, the degree of commitment, uh, time, energy, and, and, and money-wise, um, which allows you to be able to be uh, an artisan uh, winemaker. And uh, for listeners out there, uh, if you get a chance and you're thinking about uh, making a trip to the West Coast, you might add uh, Oregon to the itinerary and the Willamette Valley and s- the Stoller Family Estate uh, winery right down to the uh, situation and the actual structure uh, for tasting. Um, I had a really wonderful experience, and, uh, you know, I want to give a tip of the hat. Megan, I think, was pouring and uh, educating me about some of the wines and uh and there were some great uh food uh, cheese and uh um fruit pairings and uh and it was just a a, a really a really great experience and that sort of led me to wow I want to learn more about what goes into um the process at uh, the Stoller family estate and so uh a, a tip of the hat to to Bill Stoller and you must really appreciate that you have a uh, an owner and, uh, and 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 vintner like that. Well, absolutely, and just to kind of echo that and and uh, share the accolades of Stoller, I'm really grateful and proud to be part of a place like like it is. I mean, Bill Stoller has that vision and the dedication and and the passion to turn this 400 acre property into a 200 acre state of the art, world class vineyard, and then. You know, the winery was built in 05. It's a LEED certified, the first in the world. Beautiful wine facility, all top-end production, and then to expand the company. And it's it's gone from, you know, the, his vision and his dedication to this absolutely phenomenal place to be. I mean, it's it's a beautiful property. It, the, the vineyard is amazing. And what really has come together are the people. We have an absolutely incredible team of people. Yeah, I, a lot I got of it, yeah, I got the impression that you have just so. a, a really, really, really solid, uh, great group of folks. Um, Melissa, we barely uh, scratched the surface. We're going to have to have you back for part two. Will you come back for another session? I will, as long as we didn't bore everybody to death there. So. No, no, no. <laughs> you had some really great insights about the uh, the process, and we can talk more uh, about the process and the specific wines and uh, uh, winemaking in general, and you being one of the very small number of women uh, that are uh, a recognized winemaker. So thank you so much for being my guest today in the Business Hour, Melissa. Well, it's my pleasure. And maybe the best way to go about it is you should come back to Stoller and you could do something from the tasting room or something like oh, that. Oh, that would be great. We can uh, host you. We'd uh, be happy to. We'll have to talk about having a remote uh, broadcast from, uh, there we from, go. from okay, the, the winery. Like Again, thank you, Melissa. You've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on the radio and the Internet next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.